Gobble, gobble. Today is Tuesday, November 20th, 2018. Time for episode 67 of the Barnhart Podcast. As we roll into Thanksgiving week here in the United States, and I say that because we have listeners all over the world, well, Canada and and, uh, the UK and Australia, and a few elsewhere, I'd like to point out that sometimes we have things going on in the United States that are somewhat unique, like the great uh, secular feast of Thanksgiving, where we allegedly get together with people who are friends and not so friendly and be thankful for everything we have. And then the next day we go out and knock the crap out of each other while trying to buy stuff at the store. Yeah, it's pretty insane. And Super Nerd, I I have to correct you on behalf of all of the Canadian listenership right now. Canadians do, in fact, have their own fake Canadian Thanksgiving, which is, if I'm not mistaken, the first Monday in October, something like that. So in Kanukistan, they totally, totally have their own fake Thanksgiving. But what we are getting ready to celebrate in in 48 hours is, is of course, real, real Thanksgiving. So that's what we're all uh, shopping and working up towards. At least it's the version we celebrate here in the United States, and uh, I don't know if we have a national hockey game to celebrate it, but uh, beginning of October, does does the hockey season even start in Canada up there? I don't. I know it's uh, cold in the winter, but I don't know if it actually freezes yet by the beginning of October. I'm sure we'll get like five know what emails. They do. It's to probably some... like a world world curling championship or something like that. I, I I really don't know. I really don't know. I should know because I got a, a bunch of. Uh, I, I had a bunch of Canadian cattle clients, but honestly, I don't know what the what the tradition is. I mean, there's not that I know of. Um, there isn't the the tradition like what is, it's the Detroit Lions play on Thanksgiving Day, right? Is that correct? Well, it, it used to be everything is monetized now in the NFL, so it, it all depends. Uh, it used to be the Lions and the Cowboys, or the Cowboys and the Redskins, and the Lions against somebody else. Uh, it's all based on. You know, economic modeling and what could make the most money for the NFL now. So I hope the, uh, the lions play that, that there is something of a tradition and, um, well, the, the lions were horrible for years and years and years and years and years to the point that it got to be, you know, kind of this joke about, yeah, there's going to be this football game on Thanksgiving, but it's just going to be a formality. The, the lions are going to lose to whoever it was that year, you know, but, I don't know. I haven't. I have not followed certainly NFL football in now years and years and years. So I don't even know if if the Lions are terrible or average or good or what. I I don't even know. Do you know? I haven't looked at the standings recently, but I thought that they were not doing too horribly. But I don't know. I know that the team geographically closest to me is uh, doing pretty well. I mm-hmm. guess. So I don't know. College basketball has started, so I don't really care about NFL football anymore. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, and some of the best sporting events I've ever been to have been college basketball games and not even Division One, but like, you know, real student athletes. I remember I went to a fantastic basketball game when I lived in Denver at the at the Colorado School of Mines. And I don't even know what division that is, if it's what do they call it? Division three or something like that. I don't know, but it's actual student athletes playing basketball against each other. What fun. 
how enjoyable is that? I mean, it was like, it was like, you know, glorified, glorified high school basketball. Good times, man. Wholesome. Good times. Well, it's, it's like basketball among high school basketball with two really good high school teams. And they really are students first, athlete second, as opposed yeah. to the division one schools, which are allegedly students and professional athletes, really. But um, yeah, it's, it, there's definitely something about uh, seeing authentic student athletes give it their all, knowing that this is going to be the the athletic peak of their life, and then they'll go on and do real work for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I have to go on a mini rant. When I was at K State, you know, K State Division One football, the football team especially just operated as a farm system for the NFL. And I remember my very very last semester. Um, before graduating, I graduated in what in spring of '97. So spring semester of 1997, um, I have like just torn my way through getting this getting this bachelor's degree. I tore through it in three years. I mean, did 15 hour summer school summers, you know, just crazy. And then at the the last semester I had, I really had a bunch of classes that were just electives. I just needed to get electives on the books. One of the classes that you could take as an elective, and this was genuinely interesting to me, was Introduction to Nuclear Physics. And if you were not um, a physics major, if you were not a, or an engineering major or anything like that, the class was just pass-fail for you. It wasn't a you know, it wasn't an A, B, C, D graded sort of a thing. It was just pass fail. And basically it was an attendance class. I mean, there, (laughs) there, I think the, the final exam was oral. Yeah. You went to the professor's, um, office and I just sat and talked to him for 15 minutes. And of course he loved me because I sat there and was actually paying attention and, you know, was a, a uh, reasonably cleanly dressed female who, you know, wore makeup and things like that. And, you know, he just loved me and he would come and he, he would just essentially stand in front of me and just deliver the lecture to me. I'm really interested in this. We got to go on a tour of the the um, nuclear power plant at K-State, see it running, you know, with the glow coming up out of the water. It was crazy. It was awesome. It was really cool. Really glad I took the class. But anyway, the point of this is that in this class, um, because outside majors were pass-fail, a lot of the football players were told to take this class. So the football players, these guys come, show up for the first two class periods. Remember, it's pass-fail. It's just basically an attendance class for them, certainly for them. Um, They show up for the first two class sessions. It's like a Tuesday, Thursday morning class. They show up the first week, Tuesday, Thursday, you never see them again. Then I recognize, I see one of these guys, one of these football players, let's say, and I'm not, I'm not going to live in fear of, of, um, you know, being called a racist or anything. This black guy, you know, he tells inner city black guy, he's been recruited as a football player. I see him, he would park his car over on the street over where I lived um, and for those of you listening who um, have any familiar f- familiarity with K-State in Manhattan, I lived over by where the, the Teak House was, the TKE fraternity, Tau Kappa Epsilon, whatever that is, over there on McCain Lane, up on that hill on the east side of campus. I had a beautiful apartment. 
and he would come. This guy was driving a brand new Toyota Land Cruiser, which was like one of the most, that was the really luxe, um, because I don't think there were even Cadillac Escalades at that point, I want to say. So this guy, this football player, can't be bothered to even come to an attendance class and is driving around in a brand new Toyota Land Cruiser. This just, this is why, you know, the whole mainstream education thing, it's just even in the context of getting a degree in agriculture, which is what I was doing, I'm, I was just so sickened by all of this, how just the whole thing was just this ridiculous, almost cult, this tribalistic thing. And we're going to get into this later. Talk about a segue. Um, this whole just cultish tribalistic thing of having this damn NFL farm team and these guys running around on campus being handed the potential to have a free education, to actually learn something and do something with themselves. And then you layer on top of that the fact that they're clearly, clearly being illegally paid off. There's absolutely no way that that guy, that football player, that that was his Toyota Land Cruiser. There's there's just absolutely no way. So there were all these payment payments in kind and all this stuff going on. Um, and you know, everybody acting like they're all as pure as the wind driven snow. And my goodness, all of these excellent, fine young men, these student athletes, student athletes, my foot, it was just, it was just the minor leagues of the NFL. And it's, it isn't, it's the fact that everybody was so dishonest about it. That's what makes me angry. I mean, I understand that, yeah, there's going to be a development system somehow, some way for these professional sporting leagues. You know, young men need to actually learn how to play football. Hey, man, I'm not arguing that. The problem I have is how deceptive all of this is. And just, you know, going through this this ridiculous pantomime show pretending like these guys playing college football and also in, in other contexts, college basketball, that these guys are anything other than just minor league athletes, which is what they are, who are being paid, who are being paid under the table illegally. So that's my rant. Well, like I said, that I, I was, really wasn't joking saying that they are fake student professional athletes. There's in fact, the NBA just started a new program that uh, you're supposed to go to college or something you, one one year after your high school graduation before you can go to the NBA. And now they've said that they're going to start offering a select number, maybe 20 or so uh, spots in the NBA G League for select high school seniors. And they can make $125,000 during that one year when the average G League salary is 15000 or something like that. And the joke I heard, and I accept it's not really a joke, is what player of the caliber who could get that would take 125k when they can go to Duke and make five times that? Uh, right, totally, totally. And you know, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to throw stones, cast aspersions, name names, Notre Dame. <laughs> we don't, you know, we don't want to get into that. But um, yeah, it's it's so wildly corrupt. It's just ridiculous, and it's it's a shame because college college sports and 
to my mind, college basketball, that's my favorite. Um, football has gotten to be so physically traumatic um, that it's it's just frightening. It's I, I don't I don't want to watch some guy get paralyzed. I don't want to watch some guy get killed. I don't even want to watch. I saw on uh, the internet. I guess it was this past Sunday. One of the NFL quarterbacks had a just a horrific, gruesome Joe Theismann esque shattering of his of of his leg, and it's just ugh. I I don't want to watch that, man. I I wish they would go back. I think we might have we we have may may have even discussed this before on a on a previous podcast. I wish they'd um you know take take the pads away take the helmets away have them wear uh, those old school crazy leather uh helmets that they used to wear back in the day for their own safety so that they would stop hitting each other um with just the the incredible force and violence and it's just getting worse and worse and worse every year just reading some story before before um super nerd called there's some kid in high school that that's weighs 350 pounds and is playing is playing on offense. You know, I'm just like, no, this is this isn't good. And it's going to get to the point or if it isn't there already where it's going to be full on gladiatorial, um, you know, play play to the maiming or or even play to the death. And you can see where it's going. And, and I'm just not interested at all. Not interested. We did mention it previously on, on the podcast, and, and I think you might have even made the the comment that it's only a matter of time before we see somebody die from one of these hits. And it was only a couple yeah. of weeks later that it happened in a high school football game. I don't know if it was Texas or Illinois or Florida or what, but it it happens every few years. Somebody takes some serious hit. There's a there's neck injury. They take him out and find out the kid dies a couple hours later. Yeah, and, and, it's really dangerous because when you get one of those head traumas and it's all you're exactly right, it's almost always the same thing. Kid takes some monster hit. Kid gets up, walks off the field under his own power, is even talking. I mean, he's dinged, but he's talking. What's happening is that he's he's got a slow bleeder in his brain. He's bleeding out into his brain, but he he doesn't he doesn't collapse and pass out until a few minutes or even a couple of hours later. I know someone who was um hit by a car while they were riding a bicycle and you know did one of those huge arcing launches through the air, landed, you know, head first on the ground and all that. Person was talking for a few minutes um, after this happened. You know, people came over and and were were helping and everything. And it wasn't until um, a few minutes later that you know they lost consciousness. And then, sure enough, rush him to the hospital. And there's some big bleeder and a hematoma on the brain. And thank goodness they lived. I mean, thank goodness they lived. But that that stuff you got to be careful you get if you ever see somebody get hit in the head if you're ever in a car accident or anything like that and involves any sort of a blow to the head to yourself or to anyone else understand it's not it's not an instantaneous thing there can be a delay of minutes to even a couple of hours on that so don't mess around man if you ever get hit in the head take it seriously err on the side of caution if they want to call an ambulance and haul you off to the emergency room, I'll go ahead and do that if you've taken a blow to the head. Yeah. I forget what it stands for exactly, but the term is CTE. It's um, cephalotrauma, something or other. Another place where it's extremely common is in the military, especially the uh, the tier one groups that are constantly on the, on the tip of the spear 
and and they're literally in in, in situations where they are, well getting hit by concussion waves because they're close to the combat and things like that. And, and a mm-hmm. lot of times that is a precursor to some of the PTSD symptoms. It's not, some of it's psychological, but some of it is physiological as well. I mean, some of these guys are so well conditioned, they're not going to get, they're not going to get the, the, the psychological aspect, but they continue getting concussions. They, they get, you know, taken out of the teams because they, they physically can't pass the the test test anymore. And I guess that's another reason why if, if you, <laughs> You know, pray for these people, uh, whether they're athletes or soldiers, pray for them and, and, you know, be thankful for all the blessings that we have in life that I have in the notes here, you know, because of Thanksgiving. Yes, I, I opened with, with the tongue in cheek, uh, comment that I did. Um, actually I forgot what I said exactly. Uh, in my notes, I have something here about having wild turkey ready, but the, the main point I was getting to was talking about real Thanksgiving. And when we give thanks and prayer, it's, it's the, the arts, uh, acronym ARTS, Adoration, Reparation, Thanksgiving is one of the four things there. And then the S for supplication, asking for what we need. So Thanksgiving is an essential element to prayer. And Well, you know, of course, what, what the Greek word for Thanksgiving is. I forget off the top of my head. <laughs> Eucharist. <laughs> How you know, I, I thought you were going to say that and then I couldn't remember which one it was. Yep. Yeah, Eucharisto, yep. it's, it's um, yeah, Thanksgiving. It is, so the Eucharist is the, um, what the, in the, in the Jewish paradigm, in the Old Testament paradigm, it was the Todah sacrifice, which is the only Jewish sacrifice from the Old Covenant that it was said from the beginning, this will be the only sacrifice that will carry on forever in perpetuity all of the animal sacrifices all of the atonement sacrifice all of that is is going to stop the only one of these sacrifices that we're doing in this old covenant that will carry on forever is the todah sacrifice the the sacrifice of thanksgiving and of course that's of that's exactly true because all of the other jewish sacrifices stopped and then the Todah sacrifice was perfected and fulfilled by our Lord himself. And now we have the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That is the Eucharist. That is the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the Todah sacrifice. And then eventually, you know, when the church, when at the end of the world, when the church militant passes away, in, in the church triumphant, all that there will be is this perpetual um this perpetual sacrifice of thanksgiving that the 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 true high priest our lord and savior jesus christ god the god the son offers to god the father so that's it so thanksgiving in a sense it's this kind of weird secular um certainly um protestant founded uh, established by puritans and all that but when you stop and and make these connections and think about all these things i mean it is it's it's not an intrinsically evil thing to to have a to have a holiday where everybody gets together sits down and and is thankful for things but it it also is is a is a profoundly catholic thing and and the church and catholicism should take this secular feast founded by founded by these horrible schismatic heretical protestant crazy people these puritans who got thrown out of england because they were too cray cray for the other schismatics over in england and they said get the hell out of here 
Um, and not, so not is, only did, did it involve that group, but it was instigated by the Indians, specifically by Squanto, who was himself Catholic. And I'll have to find a link to this, but uh, it, it's the six things about Thanksgiving that you know you should know, but nobody ever tells you. And I want to say this comes from uh, Taylor Marshall's blog. I'll find the link and put this in the show notes. But definitely. that was one of the things that, that uh, I didn't know until I saw that is that uh, Squanto was Catholic. Cool. Right on. I didn't know that either. So there you go. It's it's all about Thanksgiving and cir- as everything eventually does, everything circles back to the Eucharist. Well, in, in my house, one of the things for which we are very grateful, very thankful this year is um, the relative health of Tiny Princess. She uh, went, went to the hospital for a regular checkup yesterday and I got a chance to talk to the doctor some you know, the, the babies with her condition, only 1% make it to six months and she's going to be eight months here in a couple of weeks. Um, so it's, we're, we're past the, the 1%. I don't know how many standard deviations out this is. And, and at, at this point it's, who knows, she's just, she's an outlier at this point and we're thankful for it. And, um, you know, she's, she's such a peaceful it, it's really hard to describe, but you, the, the peace just radiates from her. The, the I, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, when, when you hold her, and it's not just me, but the people who have have come here to help, they they say that when you when you hold her, you can just feel the peace and the joy radiating from her. And which is kind of strange to say about somebody who will never have the use of reason, but it, it's undeniable. And it's not just one person saying it's not me planting some kind of um, suggestion. They say this on their own. And it, it's um, obviously she's not going to be with us forever. I don't know how much longer, but um, you know, we, we cherish her every day we can. And we are definitely very thankful for, for her and, and, and for everybody who's helped. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but for everyone who has has you know sent notes of of uh, we're praying for you or have sent uh, donations, we are every 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 night when we pray the rosary, uh, myself and my kids are, are praying for tiny princesses benefactors. So uh, thank Yay. you so much. We we are more thankful than we know how to put into words. And um, no no show anticipating Thanksgiving should, um, at least on my end, I, I didn't I didn't want to let that go without saying thank you to everybody who has helped out. It, it really means more than I know how to say, to be honest. Well, thanks to everybody who participated in the St. Anne Novena that we did not too long ago, which worked worked absolutely like a charm. And um, that you've got, you've got, um, a, a sister, a nun coming every, almost every night, not every night, but almost every night. And I was really struck by what you, um, was it you that told me or super mommy told me that, um, that tiny princess d- does a lot better and is more, you know, has a much smoother night and apparently doesn't have as many of the, the, um, the seizures that, that she suffers from when somebody is holding her. And, you know, again, one wonders if, if she's even able to perceive, perceive whether, you know, something like whether or not she's being held or, or things like that. I I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure she can, she can obviously feel, you know, another human being, but it's just really interesting that, um, that she does so much better and, and she's calmer and, and sleeps better and, and is even less symptomatic, which is pretty remarkable, when there's somebody there to hold her. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Well, and I was just talking with a sister a couple of mornings ago uh, before 
you know, I'd give her a ride back to the convent and, and, um, asking about, um, just, just different aspects of their spirituality because every, every, uh, religious house has some sort of, uh, distinct spirituality. And, and they mentioned, um, something about Mary as the, as, as the medical helper, so to speak. And it never quite, I was contemplating this while driving and something that I'd heard before all of a sudden clicked and in, into in mind, I've heard it said that our lady was given infused knowledge second only to Christ in his natural state. In other words, the, the, the amount of, of infused knowledge she was given was exceeded or exceeded what Adam and Eve was given, what many of the angels were given, or maybe all of the angels. So think about this for a minute. Not only is she the mother of Christ during the passion, but she has more knowledge than every doctor who's ever been. So every trauma surgeon, every thoracic surgeon, every um, anything who any doctor who could give a a, a precise opinion uh, of you know when a, a lash hits Jesus and rips his skin open, and having an idea of what the what the reaction is to the skin and, and of what what the muscles would feel like and all of that, knowing you know when when. Um, when the when the crown of thorns is is shoved on, what that's going to be doing in the brain and and the the pain that will inflict and how it's going to hurt and not only just in a, in an academic sense, but she's the mother of this person to whom it's being done. It never occurred to me when you compound those two things together, just how much more powerful you know that sword pierced her heart at that point, and and uh, that was and something I never quite con- considered until sister mentioned that. And uh, one of the other things she mentioned too, I mean, it kind of understood this or expected it is, is that part of the, the nature of, of uh, the order, which is um, medically based and, and taking care of patients is that they, they prepare to, I don't want to use a, a, a modern sounding word. Uh, she didn't use it in these terms, but basically encounter Jesus through this person that they are helping Jesus through this person. I mean, it's right in the gospels too. whatever you do to the least of, of my brethren you do to me. But, mm-hmm. um, so they're, they're picked up at the convent at eight thirty in the evening, but for, for the half hour or so before they're picked up as part of their, um, as part of their, their schedule, they do a holy hour where they specifically are spiritually united to Jesus with the, not just in the same sense that you do in, in meditation, but you know, it, before the, the blessed Eucharist, um, praying and meditating, but then saying, I'm, I, I'm going to now put my love for you into action through this other person. And wow. it's, it, it, it's a, it's a really, it's a really neat thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad I asked her about it because I, I, you know, it's, it, it's neat. I, I don't know how else to put it. And that's not putting it nearly as powerfully as I should, but and I think this is a really apt moment to point out to people that up until the great asteroid strike of now 50 years ago, look at how many um, sisters, nuns, how many of these women there were doing this kind of work. I mean, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that as you drive through your town that the hospitals are called St. Luke's. St. Mary's, St. Joseph's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, for a long time, for centuries now, healthcare has been primarily the domain of the church. And it was, it were these, these women religious 
who were working, doing all of this nursing. Now, look at the fallout of all this. You, the church, you know, in the last 50 years, infiltrated as it, as it has been, has now decided what it's going to do is it's going to lay all of this off on the, on the federal government. It's going to become basically the middleman for all of this, um, a, a, for-profit, a for-profit middleman. Um, it's going to take all of the all of the Catholicism, you know, out of it. There aren't any more nuns who are, especially nuns who are doing nursing. Um, but think think of that when you got sick and when you went to the hospital seventy five years ago, a hundred years ago, this what we what Superner just described with the the nurse nuns who are taking care of you doing a holy hour every day, praying specifically that um, that they would be able to see and serve Christ in you, the sick person. I mean, can you even, can you even imagine healthcare being like this anymore in this day and age, as, as far gone as it is, as much as it's been turned into this, this monopolistic, um, wildly corrupt, um, you know, government racket, basically, you know, um, and it, yeah, the technology's advanced, but to, to what end, you know, we need to be getting back to these models where a, you have, you have a place for young women and young men to go to live a religious life, to live a life of service dedicated to our Lord and his Holy church. And, and, who, that's who should be, you know, working in hospitals. And another big thing that I've mentioned on the on the podcast, and we we just keep seeing this, is that's who used to um, take care of the insane the insane asylums and take care of people who were mentally ill and need to be institutionalized. And there's now just this movement that you can't institutionalize anybody. So we've got these people running around who are schizophrenic, and you know, it's just a matter of time. Before these people, a certain percentage of these people, small percentage, but a certain percentage will at some point snap and go shoot a bunch of people. And we see that and they're and they don't commit any crimes before that moment when they snap, but they've been identified as being extremely mentally ill, schizophrenic all along. There's there's nowhere to to for these people to go. There are no insane, insane asylums. The church has gotten completely out of this. There are no women religious who are, are, who are able to take care of the mentally ill anymore. It's, it's just, it's all of a piece. All of this stuff is interconnected. Well, aside from the, uh, I guess you could say ministry of taking the criminally insane and making them archbishops in DC and New York, Mm. they've pretty much Mm. abandoned taking care of, of, of those folks. And I, I want to get through some of these notes because we're half an hour in. We haven't even gotten to the main topic, even close. Uh, a, couple <laughs> of, right. a couple of email feedbacks I wanted to point out. Uh, we, we talked some about purgatory in the last episode, and, and one person wrote in with describing the way that they like to pray uh, for the poor souls. They, they, they pray for a, that they, a specific soul would be assigned to them. So all of their prayers, sacrifices, indulgences, they offer it up for that one soul. And the idea being that uh, obviously that person will never be ungrateful 
Uh, so, so no matter how, and, and this might be particularly relevant for for folks who are converts and have no Catholics in their in their or very few Catholics uh, among their friends or families, etc. You know, pray for the poor souls. They are not going to forget you, and there are so many of them that are totally forgotten. And um, you want to make you want to make the uh, you know eternal friends. You know. Read, read the scripture half an hour, do everything per day, do look up the, in, in the list of, of indulgences, what, what the uh, plenary indulgences are that are still on the books and offer those up for the poor souls. Uh, at that point, they can't be wasted because if you, if, if you offered it only for yourself, you could blow it if you fall back into sin again. But if you offer it up for the poor souls, if you fall back into sin, it's not blown. It's already applied to somebody else. And they're going to pray to get you back, you know, if only for their, <laughs> I hate to use it, man, huh. ran term, enlightened self-interest. They're going to want you to be in the <laughs> state of grace so that they can, you can keep praying for them. But also, they're not going to be ungrateful. I mean, you help them, they're going to help you. And and um, obviously, Our Lady is is uh, a big help there, both to you in that case and, and to the poor souls. So in short, there is no wrong way to pray for the poor souls or to state it the other way. The only wrong way to pray for the poor souls is to not pray for them. Uh, somebody else pointed out, uh, because I guess we didn't word it clearly, that uh, the question of, wait, where is limbo? Because in eternity, there's only heaven and hell. And this sounds a little odd, but limbo is a section of hell. But it's yes. not punishment. And it's hell because you have the deprivation of, of God's presence. And it, the, the place where the, where you don't have God's presence is hell. Now, because you don't have personal culpability, you don't have torture and punishment. So there, there's the natural state of happiness because you never rejected God. So you're not culpable in that respect. Right. And I just touching on what you said about purgatory a second ago, just reiterating, you know, the vast majority of people I would think that are in purgatory right now are completely and totally forgotten by everyone that is alive today. Um, just as just as most human beings who have ever lived are completely and totally forgotten by everyone who's lived today. That, so a beautiful that's thing that, that I that's something that saints have confirmed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if you just sit and think about it, I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Um, and so I think a beautiful thing to do is what you said, super nerd, ask to pray for specifically for a person in purgatory who is completely and totally forgotten on earth. So you can, you can do that. Another thing to do is to ask to pray for someone who is alive right now, but unknown to you a person who has nobody else praying for them and probably isn't going to have anyone else praying for them. Do you know Either the story of the, of, of the man who converted and became a bishop as a result of that devotion? I, yes, this, I, I have heard this story before, but you can go ahead and expand on it if you want to. Well, I'll find a link to the audio or find a copy that I snagged from the website that had it all. Um, but the, the short story was that there, this man was, uh, he, I think he had just finished law school and was contemplating his, his uh, future and his success and what he was going to achieve and do in life. And as he was contemplating these things, he had a vision of a nun praying, very devout, very, had a very obvious sense of holiness about her and heard, the, heard a voice saying, she prays for you without ceasing. And he was really struck by this. So he went to a, a, a local monastery. This is a couple hundred, 300 years ago when there were a lot of good Catholic monasteries around. Went on a retreat, um, decided to enter the religious life, became a priest, eventually became a bishop. And he had a particular, I forget what his ministry was, 
Um, I don't know if it was overseas missionaries or what it was, but it was it was a very fruitful um, apostolate. And he was talking to one of his brother bishops one day, and, and who was asking him about all this, saying, "Hey, you've you've done so much good work for the church," and and he he you know, saying, "You must be pretty proud of yourself about this." And he said, "No, I actually I I can only attribute everything I've I've achieved to the to the prayers of some somebody I, I've never met and probably never will." And described the vision. Well, the next day they went to this convent that was in the the, the hosting bishop's um, um, diocese, and and the the guest bishop who had had this vision long ago, uh, he was giving communion to the to the sisters, and and in the last set of sisters he sees the nun that that was shown to him in the vision, and just he just froze for a minute and kind of startlement, fear, wonder, wasn't sure what to do, and then returned to his senses, finished mass, afterwards. He asked the the mother prioress to assemble all the nuns, and and um, they they all were there, and he couldn't find the one. Is it? And she he asked mother mother prioress, is it? Is there? Are they all here? Is there not anyone missing? And she said, Oh yes, there's this one other nun. She she's very diligent in her job. She's let me go get her. And she her job was like working in the stables or something. It's very very humble, you know, not not profound by any means. And the bishop talked to her and, and said, are there any devotions in particular that you have? And she said, yes, I offer up for one soul, it's the choosing of, of the Sacred Heart, who, to whoever uh, pleases him, that I offer all of my devotions, all of my prayers, all my sacrifices for that soul. And and he said, that's it? <laughs> and and, and it's, well, yeah. And he's like, do you know whether or not your your, your prayers have, 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 uh, have borne fruit? And she says it's for Jesus to know, and that that's sufficient. I'm I'm happy. I don't need to know. And and um, he uh, re- related this to the to the other bishop. He says, I know who who it is. I I can thank my my vocation for. And the kicker to the story was that the the vision that he had when he converted was not only of this nun, but at the age she was when he met her. Her offerings ah. and her prayers were so pleasing to God that her prayers were answered in advance. Yeah. Yeah. Not limited by time. That's, I'm so glad you said that because the third intention that a person could, could pray for is to pray for someone who will not be born until after you are dead. You see what I'm saying? So it, what it does is it's, it makes you mindful of the fact that a God is not limited by time that B we are not the end all be all of, of, you know, existence right now in our age in, in, in this short w- window of time in which we are alive on earth. Um, and it's also kind of that same idea as, you know, it's the wise man who plants a tree, the shade of which he knows he will never enjoy. You know, that, that, that sort of thought about, you know, getting yourself outside of time and not being, um, oh, how could you put it, Tempor- temporally snobbish in that way. Because, yeah, God, God exists outside of time and he can you know, move these things around and apply them. That's why you pray for people like, for example, you know, we're having all these terrible shootings and tragedies and fires, you know, these terrible fires in California and all that. You definitely should pray for the people who are killed in, in those events. Um, because God is not limited by time. And so, you know, 
if if you say prayers today for people who died a week ago, two weeks ago, people who died in 9-11, you know, people who died in this, that, the other war, whatever, God, being not limited by time, can take your prayers and apply those wherever he wants within the timeline, past, present, or future. So, um, but just as an exercise, pray for people in purgatory who are completely forgotten. So that's kind of covering the past. Um, pray for someone that's alive today, right now that you don't know and will never meet like the story super nerd just told. And then also make the intention to pray for someone who will not be born until after you are dead. And, um, you know, that will cover the future. And it's just, it's just good to be mindful of that. Prayers are not wasted. Uh, nope. The, the only, the only prayers that can't be applied are the prayers you never pray because you're, you know, in, in indulging in some kind of luxury or, or waste of time and, and therefore any opportunity to praise God and offer, offer uh, graces and, and merits to some point in the future or past. That, those are the only bad prayers because they were never prayed. Um, one last item I wanted to hit on, on the email. <laughs> we talked about the F-35 in the Air Force, and I made a, a throwaway comment about uh, the, the golf courses next to the runways. And a 27-year Air Force vet said, no, 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 the, we don't put the golf courses next to the runways. The Air Force bases are designed around the golf courses, and we stick the runway as far away as possible so it doesn't interrupt the game. So... <laughs> I, there you go. <laughs> I, I, if, if you're a member of that tribe, you definitely understand what that's all about. And that's mildly tongue in cheek. I mean, the Navy, we have practical considerations. We have to put our bases by the water. The Marines have to put their bases kind of on the beach so they can practice jumping into the water and then jump, running up on the land. Army, they pretty much get the pieces of land that the Indians didn't want. And so the Bureau of Indian Affairs had this stuff left over and said, OK, Army, you can go there. And um, the Coast Guard, they 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 find some luxury spot in the city and put their 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 ships there and then the air force just figures out where can we make a good golf course exactly but speaking of tribalism that is uh, the the main the main topic we wanted to get to in this podcast so i'll let you take that one well you know the big news uh been posting on it on the blog pushing it it's getting picked up it's going more and more mainstream keep it going keep it going keep it going um this whole business of monsignor nicola books b-u-x this italian this respected italian um uh priest he worked in the cdf he is a liturgist he um he currently is working in the Curia for the causes of the saints and, and so on and so forth. He also has a parish in, in a city in Italy. So, you know, and this guy is, is, has been around. He's respected. Here, here comes this interview where he says, you know, we need to be investigating. Someone needs to be investigating the validity of Pope Benedict's abdication. And he specifically made the point. In fact, let me just pull up his exact quote that has been translated from the original Italian into uh, into lovely readable English. Okay, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. All right, here it is. Here's here's the quote. Monsignor Nicola books quote. Perhaps, and I say this from a practical point of view, it would be easier to examine and study more accurately the question concerning the juridical validity of Pope Benedict XVI's renunciation, i.e., whether it is full or partial, halfway as someone has said, or doubtful, since the idea of a, of a sort of collegiate papacy seems to me decidedly against the gospel dictate. Jesus did not say, in fact, tibi dabo claves, 
turning to Peter and Andrew, um, TB Dabo Claves is Latin for to you I give the keys. I'm Anne is inserting that. Um, back to the books quote now, quote, turning to Peter and Andrew. No, he but he only told Peter. That's why I say that perhaps a thorough study of renunciation could be more useful and profitable as well as helping to overcome problems that today seem insurmountable to us, unquote. I do want to interject then, something really quick. When you say TB yeah. Dabo uh, Clavis and to you I give the keys, proper, well, I shouldn't say proper, but in English, because you, singular, you plural is the same, TB is really y'all. So it's you plural. TB Dabo Clavis is, is plural? Isn't it? Uh, in uh, in all of the other romance languages, t t t is t t is the first is is the second person singular, right? I think I think plur, plural would be um, v. It's almost always v i or something like that. V voy, you know, that's Italian. Um, in Spanish, vosotros, it's always the v is for y'all and T is you familiar singular. So I'm pretty sure TB Dabo Claves would be, is speaking to one person as our Lord saying it just to Peter, which is the point that Monsignor books is making here. Now, what, what happened is that this, this P or this interview, which originally appeared in the Italian press, um, got a little bit of play and then, it started being picked up very slowly um, in in English language outlets. PJ Media, which is a pretty good sized, um, definitely more on the right, but PJ Media is a good sized American um, news outlet, internet news outlet. They had a, a reporter write up a full thing on this, and, and that, and this woman's reportage at PJ Media was even more thorough than Edward Penton's piece was. So she quotes all of this, and then she goes on to say, and she did a really good job. She said, um, quote, to address the current crisis, he suggested that an examination of the, quote, juridical validity of Pope Benedict's Pope Benedict XVI's resignation was in order to, quote, overcome problems that today seem insurmountable to us. The theologian consulter to the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints, that's Monsignor Books, was implying that further study of the situation could reveal that Francis is not and never has been a valid pope, but is in fact an anti-pope who could be removed from the papacy, thus nullifying his, quote, insurmountable errors. Well, brava to this girl. She she nailed it. She just she got it right. And this is on PJ Media. So now, you know, LifeSite News is picking it up. Um trying trying to keep it going and boy trying to see if if one of the big outlets like the associated press or reuters if their rome correspondent maybe would pick this up because it's it's obviously newsworthy it's ob obviously it's newsworthy i think it's the most one of the most important things going on on the surface of the earth right now obviously um 
Um, but just want to want to keep this this momentum and this reportage on this going and how it's going mainstream. And the more the more it's reported on, the more people talk about it. I mean, Monsignor Books, you have to give it you have to hand it to him because I would anticipate that he is going to have, you know, Rome come down on him like a ton of bricks. He, he probably should anticipate that his career in the church as he knows it is, is over, um, you know, as hateful and evil and awful as the Roman Curia is. Good grief, we've got Archbishop, Archbishop Vigano, the guy who, who released the dossier exposing the sodomite mafia. He's in hiding for fear of his life. Can you can you imagine? I mean, Monsignor, Monsignor Books in saying this, and and finally someone coming out and saying it aloud, and not just me and the handful of other people on the internet who are talking about this, but now an an actual curial Monsignor, a, a, a respected guy, um, in, in the church, is coming out and saying, you know, we need we need to look at this. This is now going to open the door for other people to come out and say, yeah, I think we do need to look at this. We do need to talk about this. Um, there's, there's already a lot of people who, who are on board with this, who suspect this, who wish that, that this whole concept would be discussed. But on, in the Catholic blogosphere, it's, you're just, people are just censored right and left on trad blogs there are trad blogs for which my name is a censor parameter because they they they'll sit around and they'll talk about, you know, accepting heresy, this accepting heresy that. Well, you know, Pope Francis in scare quotes, Pope Francis, he, he, clearly he's he's a heretic. Maybe maybe we've all been wrong about papal in, infallibility all along. Maybe we need to start questioning whether or not Vatican one was wrong or not. And I mean, come on, the next thing you know, you've, you've gone all the way back and you're you're a Protestant just like everyone else, you know, and Peter never was really was anybody. I mean, they make these arguments that, you know, you can't even know you can't know who the pope is and it doesn't matter anyway. OK, that is totally, totally the Protestant argument. If, if you can't know who the pope is and it doesn't matter who he is anyway, how is that any different from Protestants who deny that there even is a pope? Or that Peter had any sort of a, a special charism or title or authority beyond the other 12 apostles. You don't. You don't. You've gone full Protestant at that point. That's fine. You can discuss that. The, the These trad Catholic websites, they'll let you discuss that all day long. But the minute you pipe up and say, you know, guys, maybe we should be looking at the, the, the base, base premise of whether or not Pope Ratzinger's resignation was even valid or not oh my gosh they'll come down they'll block you you're censored you can't leave comments anymore and then the whole you're stupid you're a papolator you're dippy um you're um lacking in a in maturity you're just looking for the easy way out of everything why why don't you just shut up and be an adult and grow up and accept the fact that that Francis is the Pope and just we've been wrong about all this. I mean, it's just I look at this day in and day out and I just shake my head and you and you just keep seeing people coming up into these into these same com boxes saying in in no uncertain terms, not mincing their words. I am losing my faith. 
I am going to leave the church. I am, I'm done. I'm through. I'm finished. I'm either going to go Eastern Orthodox or I'm going to go sit in super fun rock band church with the rest of my family who, who left the church apostatized years ago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some people just pour their hearts out and say, and are saying, I, I am losing my faith. I cry every day. I don't understand how, how this could possibly be happening. And the scandal, these, and none of these Catholic quote unquote thought leaders, none of these blogs are doing anything to help these people. They're just hurting. They're just allowing the scandal of anti-Pope Bergoglio to continue and fester and grow and grow. And um, it, it makes me angry. In fact, it made me so angry that you know, I went ahead and I have, um, last Friday, I recorded a, a two and a half, a two hour and 15 minute video lecture, which, um, we're working on getting the final edit and, or the final, um, optimization and processing on it done, but I've got the timestamps. I've got all the links. I've got everything done. So we're going to get that. We're going to get that uploaded to my YouTube channel and get it out on the internet as quickly as possible because I just can't sit here anymore and do nothing while all of these people, I, and you see them every single day, are, are coming out and saying, I'm losing my faith because of anti-Pope Bergoglio. Well, I, I can explain that to you. Or they're saying, I'm losing my faith because of Pope Francis. Well, he's not Pope Francis. I can explain it to you. I can help you. I can show you that our Lord is not a promise breaker and that he's that our Lord is not a jerk and that you can absolutely trust every promise he makes now and forevermore that the Psalms are right. You know, I, I just wonder you see you see in the Psalms at, I mean, do you do you even look at the Psalms for Sunday Vespers? And over and over again, it's God is powerful. God is just. God keeps his promises. It, I mean, are you paying attention to these words? Do you believe what they say? Um, but I, I, I had to do something. So I came out of retirement. I, 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 oh, I wanted that diabolical narcissism video to be the last one. But I realized, and the thing that I said about the diabolical narcissism video is that if anybody came to me in the future and said, and could you make a video about this and such problem? I would be able to say back to them, just go watch the diabolical narcissism video because that pretty much explains all of the pathologies that we're seeing in culture and society today. Sexual perversion, you know, psychopathy amongst uh, and, and collapse amongst government, amongst uh, in finance, so on and so forth. It's, it is truly, diabolical narcissism is truly the overarching pathology. But then I realized, and it, it just really hit me, that this whole, this whole situation with this Bergoglian anti-papacy and the invalid attempted partial resignation of Pope Benedict XVI back five and a half years ago now, this is such a targeted, specific thing that I can't just say, go watch the Diabolical Narcissism video. This demands its own treatment, its own specific video. And it's the entire objective of it is just is just to help people not lose their faith. If I can had to do something, had to do it. So hopefully we'll get that uploaded here any any day now. Well, the preview version of it is, is online already. Oh, yeah. And um, I assume you're going to make a page on your website devoted to that. Yes. I'll, we'll put yeah, a link. It, to, we'll put a link to the preview version 
in the show notes or better yet, put a link to the page on your website where, where, um, where you'll, you'll devote a whole page to that. And that way we can swap out the, the, the temporary video with the final version when it's ready. But, um, I'm just working oh, on that, getting, yeah, yeah. getting the audio and lighting done on that. And, um, yeah, the, the main thing you've got the, the timeline set up for it. Um, getting the list of links and all the other attributes put together for it. And I was, I had in the, in the notes that, um, that whoever was praying that, uh, it was a question in the, in the second episode of the ask Anne as whether or not you'll ever make a video again. And you said categorically, no, it's like, well, everyone who's been praying that, that, that changed, well, Hey, it's Thanksgiving week and, uh, there's a new video. So you got that. There going you go. <laughs> so there's another two hours and 15 minutes of, of my face that's going to go on the internet now. So, but Oh, please, God, let this be it. Let this be the end. Um, I don't know if I can if I can <laughs> if I can attack an, an anti papacy and, and help with that. I mean, I don't know where you go from there. What, but then, you know, never I guess never say never. I guess that's the lesson in all of this. But really, I, I, I don't I don't want that's not what I want to do. That's not how I want to spend my time. That's not what I don't I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, uh, I, I it. In as much as I can help people, I certainly I'm, I certainly enjoy that and I'm gratified by that. But I do not like, you know, being on video and having my face on the Internet and all that. It's just not my jam. So, well, in addition go. to Monsignor Books uh, putting out the the point that uh, we need to examine whether or not the resignation was valid, there are also other people coming out and saying that the, either that the election was invalid because of electioneering or Francis can't be the Pope because he's a heretic. There are many different versions of Francis can't be the Pope coming out. And I wonder if, I wonder if this is a diabolic plan to, you know, keep everybody confused as to which one is the one you should actually pay attention to. Confused and fighting probably. Um, but I'm, I am morally certain I am beyond morally certain that you have to, you have, first of all, we have to get this right because if you get it even a little bit wrong, the consequences of it are, are just catastrophic. So if you're, if you go from the, the, the false premise that Bergoglio was elected or that, that Ratzinger's resignation was valid, there was a valid conclave called, and then Bergoglio was in fact at some point for some stretch of time, the vicar of Christ on earth, the consequences of this are, are just absolutely catastrophic, primarily in the sense that let's say, let's say, I mean, and this is a talk about fantasy. Let's say they call some, some, the college of Cardinals assembles a trial and, and decides to, try Bergoglio as a heretic, determine if he's a heretic, determine if he has, quote unquote, lost the office of the papacy for heresy. Okay, and you get rid of him. Let, let's just say you get rid of him. Or you, let's say they get rid of him off of all of this, um, you know, the fact that he is absolutely a cooperator, enabler, protector of, of child rapists and seminarian rapists and, you know, up, up to his, up to his Argentinian hairline in this sodomitical culture. Just say you get rid of the guy somehow. Now, wait a minute. If you get rid of Bergoglio, but you're operating on the false premise that 
Pope Ratzinger's resignation, attempted partial resignation, back in 2013 was valid when in fact it wasn't. What's going to happen is you're going to call another faux conclave. And guess what's going to happen? There's going to be another anti-pope who does not have the supernatural protection of the Petrine promise, who does not in any way enjoy, um, you know, that that completely unique state of negatively protected um grace and papal papal infall true papal infallibility um you're going to end up with another anti-pope and chances are just as with the parable of you know the the seven demons the woman gets rid of one demon out of her house but then you know it, it wasn't done right so then seven more move in your next anti-pope is going to be about 20 years younger than Bergoglio and is going to have probably 40 IQ points on Bergoglio because Bergoglio intellectually is dumb. He's not an intelligent man at all. He's just a thug, Um, but he's dumb. So you're going to end up with a young man who's a lot more clever as, as anti-Pope. And this, this whole thing is just going to continue on. The only way you move forward with any authentic integrity from this mess is going all the way back to exactly what the very root cause of the problem was, and that is Pope Benedict's invalid resignation. You can't just shrug your shoulders at this and say, I don't care how we get rid of Bergoglio just as long as we get rid of them. You can't do that. You have to get this right. And again, it's the parable of the, of the, the woman with the seven demons. Get rid of one, and if you if you don't go about it right, then you've got seven demons worse worse than before moving in. We have to get this right. It is absolutely essential. And so, you know, there are people coming out and trying to deflect it and trying to always turn it back to the question of Bergoglio's heresy. Well, of course he's a heretic. My goodness, he, he isn't even Catholic. I really don't see how you could make the argument at this point, in any honest sense of the word, that this man can be called Catholic. He's baptized. I mean, that he's baptized. He's ordained a priest. He's ordained a bishop. But he is so far gone into such massive apostasy, massive heresy. I, I, you, it isn't even, I, I don't even understand how, how it's even a conversation that you can call this guy Catholic. Um, so, you know, again, we just, we have to get this right. And it, it goes back to visibility. And um, an absolutely fantastic point was made. And it, it, this had never really occurred to me. And when I saw it, it was just like a light bulb going on over my head. I've been thinking a lot about the visibility of the church and the church is visible in her four marks, which is she is one, she's holy, she's Catholic, which means, you know, in modern American parlance, perhaps a word that we could use would be universal. Okay. It's, it's the one true religion. It is, it is the religion of the entire planet. It's the, it's the religion of the entire galaxy. It's the religion of the entire universe. So the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. 
the church's visibility is um, the church is visible in those four marks. And what we're talking about here, the mark that we're talking about here in terms of the papacy is, of course, the fact that the church is apostolic, which means she is built upon the apostles and their successors, of which Peter is the head and the Petrine Sea perpetuates on throughout time. So, and the, the papacy is visible, the person of the Pope, the visible head of the church, visibility, visibility, visibility. So um, this, um, I have no idea who these people are, but there's this account and a, a blog called Very Catholici, V-E-R-Y-C-A-T-H-O-L-I-C-I, And this person made the following tweet, which is just so, it puts it so beautifully, quote, if Christ did not accept the resignation of Benedict XVI as valid because the act itself was not canonically valid per Canon 188, then Christ would be obliged in justice to deprive Bergoglio of grace so that his lack of being Pope be most evident to all with faith, hope, and charity. And then this person goes on. That is the supposition. What I just said before, that's the supposition. Now, the fact is that it is most evident to everyone, even non-Catholics, that he has not the grace of God in him or in his actions. Ergo, either Christ is unjust or Christ is just. He cannot be unjust Ergo, Bergoglio is not the Pope. Well put, and you know, so beautifully puts and sums up this whole notion of the visibility, this aspect of visibility, and how it isn't that true. If if Pope Benedict XVI's partial attempted partial attempted faux abdication in February of 2013 was invalid, and he in fact remains the one and only living Pope then as this person said, Christ would be obliged in justice as a function of his justice to deprive Bergoglio of grace. I'm like, ah, fantastic point. So well put. So that's um, at the top of the, or very near the top of of the barnhart.biz blog right now. Okay, I was going to say that I'll try to find the the link to it, but I guess it's already on your website, so. Yeah, it's there. I think I sent you the link to it, but I didn't keep track of it. I don't know. It just, it all blurs together. I can't, it's so funny that I see so much stuff and I'm so bad about when I'm browsing of when I see something, um, you know, make a bookmark or open a tab. And then I'm really bad. This is kind of the German obsessive compulsive. I'm really bad about going and just closing all the tabs in my browser. I hate having, you know, a dozen tabs open on my browser that drives me batty. So I'll go and close all these tabs and it's, it's stuff that I should have kept and, you know, wanted to, and I can't find anything after, after I've, you know, glazed over it like that. And it's really frustrating, but maybe you did send it to me. Probably. And, and on the topic of, of tabs and whatnot, I have been, in the last two, three months, I've been using Firefox a lot more, both on my iPhone and uh, desktop computers. And in terms of saving tabs and cross-synchronizing between devices, that is pretty useful. Uh, if, mm. you're not, if you're not using something like OneNote or Evernote, um, I, I'm sure there are other solutions out there that work as well or better. 
Um, I would say one tab is another idea, but that that doesn't synchronize across devices. But it's uh, so funny with these browsers. I mean, it, there's such this. There's always like a pendulum swinging. Because I remember I was using Firefox up until several years ago, and then Firefox was the worst browser in terms of um, you know spam and and um, malware attacks and stuff like that. So then you stop using Firefox and you go and you start using, you know, Chrome or Safari or whatever it is. And it's like it's always the flavor of the month. So I'm, I'm not even sure anymore which is which is the best. Can we now go back to Firefox? Has there been enough work on it that it isn't it's no longer the, um, you know, the malware magnet that it was, you know, four years ago or whatever it is when I quit using it. So what would you what would you recommend? Do you think that there is a best browser right now? <laughs> best browser and um that's kind of like best cell phone i i don't consider any of them best i just i use an iphone because i think it sucks the least but um i i use i use both chrome and firefox um when when when, when chrome first came out firefox was the dominant browser but it was so bloated and there were so many security problems that uh, Chrome was like the obvious, hey, go check this out. Besides, it's coming from this company that says do no evil. So it, that that became the browser to get. And uh, now Chrome, it's it's almost swung the other way around where Chrome has, has gotten so bloated with all the extensions and everything that's been added to it. And in the meantime, Firefox, the the, the team at Mozilla there have, have completely redone the the browser. Actually, that, that's an ongoing process where they're re-engineering the browser, stripping it down to the bare minimum, raking, making it run as fast as possible. Um, there are features about Firefox which are better than, than uh, Chrome. I continue to use both. I also use Microsoft Edge because it's nice to have four browsers on, on the same computer because you can do things in different browser contexts rather nicely. Um, some people have recommended Brave, which it's the same rendering engine as Chrome. Some people have re- recommended Opera. It's the same rendering engine as Chrome. Uh, Firefox actually has a separate rendering engine, and that's probably way too geeky to uh, really get into it. Uh, no, I don't really recommend for anybody else what to use. Whatever works best for you, use it. I wouldn't say anything is objectively worse as long as you're not thinking that IE is a good option. That's Internet Explorer. <laughs> Does it even exist anymore? Oh, yeah. I, Interset, inter, interstate. Uh, <laughs> Internet Explorer 11 still exists on Windows. And the, the latest version of, of Windows 10 still includes IE 11. And uh, it is still the browser you have to use with with Microsoft Solomon and and uh, Microsoft Dynamics CRM and SharePoint and all the other stuff you have to use at work because people won't upgrade. So <laughs> that's that is a total geek tangent. You just went off right there on. <laughs> but, but talking about when when uh, Firefox used to be the browser and then Chrome displaced it, there was the point in time where. Internet Explorer was the fastest, the best, without a question, browser. And then Internet Explorer 6 happened. And it was good at first, but then they shut down the IE development team and said, okay, we're so far ahead now, we're just going to take all those developers off of IE 6 and put them on the Office team 
or put him on the the Longhorn team or whatever it was they were doing at Microsoft. Ballmer was running the company into the ground, so it was good that he retired. Somebody else took over. You know what? I'm going to stop this rant, and um, we have to talk about kombucha at some point. This has been on the back burner to talk about for, what, five <laughs> podcasts now? Talking Pretty about much, yeah. Talking about computers, it does tie in. It actually does tie in. So I am... I am totally, totally on the booch train. Um, a friend hooked me up with one of the, um, what do they call them? The SCOBY, the, um, the disc of, it's probably best to not think too much about what the SCOBY is. I don't know. Is it a mushroom or a, like a yeast colony or something like that? Anyway, you take this stuff, you make up a bunch of really sweet tea, um, you pour the tea over this um, yeast colony or whatever this thing is, this mushroom, and you let it sit for about a week. And it for it takes the sh- the the yeast colony takes the sugar that's in the tea and metabolizes it and basically turns it into vinegar. Okay. Then you take that, you can drink that straight, and it's basically one of the most delicious things. If you're like me and you're just crazy about vinegar and anything vinegary and like pickly, believe me when I tell you this stuff is absolutely spectacular. Then what you can do is you can take that after this quote unquote first fermentation, pour it through a funnel into some of these, you know, um, glass stopper bottles with the stopper top, you know, that I, I think people who brew their own beer, for example, might use these glass stopper topped bottles, put some fruit juice of your choice. I've been, I've been able to find uh, in the grocery store, these really convenient to use little bitty, um, cardboard boxes of, peach juice or peach nectar. So you pour a little bit of this, this peach juice, this peach nectar in, in the glass bottle. Then you fill the bottle up with this kombucha tea, this metabolized vinegary um, kombucha tea. And you let that cook for about 24 hours and it carbonates. It gets super fizzy. And then you have pretty much the world's greatest beverage it's it's a substitute for booze because it has that it has this really rich complexity on the palate that satisfies in the same way that alcohol does except of course there's no alcohol in it um it doesn't even have much sugar in it because the sugar has all already been metabolized into this you know vinegar basically and this stuff, I mean, I can drink I can drink a bottle, which is I don't know what how big are those bottles, probably a quart. I guess it's a quart. I can drink a quart of that a day. And it's absolutely delicious. They say it's got health benefits. I honestly don't care. I do not care about, you know, any of the non-scientific, oh, probiotics helps your gut, whatever, blah, blah, blah. If it does, great. That's fine. So you're, it, in your case, the fact that it makes you feel good is the health benefit. Yeah, it's delicious. It, it makes me happy to drink it. And it's cheap. It's it's wicked, wicked cheap. Because all you're doing, what's what are you what are your expenses here? Um, the tea, which is obviously tea is just dirt cheap. Um, and I we're just talking tea bags here, people. Nothing, nothing fancy. In fact, you can't you cannot use 
um, fancy pants green teas. You have to use just simple run-of-the-mill black tea for whatever reason. Um, I do, I have used the black flavored tea and I, I favor peach. It works really well with the peach tea. Um, so I've been, I've been using that. You have to put a bunch of sugar in when you first brew the tea. Um, sugar's cheap. Okay. And then you've got the expense of the little bit of like, for example, peach juice, but you could use whatever you, you could use whatever juice you want to use. So the, the expense of the juice, but you only put a little bit of the juice into a quart bottle. This stuff is just, is just dirt cheap. Um, and I've got such a, you know, I've got quite an operation going now. I've got probably, I would have to think that I have six to eight quarts of the stuff just cooking and in rotation all the time. So I have it all the time. Wait, so, so you, take, you take tea, but you have to ferment it first? Yes. And then you go to Vaughn's or Ralph's or Food Lion and get your fruit juice, and then you add it to it after it's fermented and let it carbonate? You, you let it carbonate, and that's called the second fermentation, yes. And, yeah, it, it's cheap, it's delicious, it's wonderful. Um, you have to be careful with cleanliness, you know, um, Keep it. You have to keep a close eye on it and good heavens, make sure that that um, it doesn't start to grow mold or anything like that and make sure that you clean out your glass bottles. That's easy enough. Um, I've never brewed beer, but it sounds like you could possibly run into the same thing of if you're trying to make your own lager and you screw up somewhere along the line, you may have made botulism and that's not exactly the best thing to drink. Yeah, you should not drink botulism. I would highly recommend against that. Um, but I've been I've been brewing and making this stuff now for months and zero problems, zero problems. And I think a lot of people are making this stuff now. And um, I've not seen I've I've not seen any horror stories. And I think you'd really have to mess up and really get it to where it was obviously molding and gross and disgusting. Um, and uh, but yeah, I've not I've not had any problems at all. Now, where this ties into computers is one day I'm, you know, I take my bottle off the shelf for the day, ready to go, ready to sit down at at the table where I work. Um, got the got my laptop open and I take the bottle over and I drink it warm. I usually don't put it even over ice. I like it warm. Um, so I've got my I've got my glass and I've got my quart bottle of kombucha for the day. And I set the kombucha bottle down on the table and I undo and I unpop the, um, the stopper top, you know, and this batch for whatever reason, like super duper quintuple sextuple septuple carbonates and kombucha flies out of the top of the bottle, which lesson learned. Now I only open the bottle of kombucha for the first time in the kitchen sink. So that if that happens again, that it won't be quite nearly as disastrous. And some of the kombucha flies up out of the bottle and lands on the laptop on the keyboard. And it shorted out one key on the keyboard. Can you guess which key it was? I'm going to guess the power key on your MacBook Air. Yeah, it was the power key. So I have this completely fine, completely functional MacBook Air with a broken power key on the keyboard. 
So I say, all right, fine. I will take this thing into, into town and I will go to this Apple store and I will suck it up and, and, you know, pay my 250 bucks or whatever it turns out to be. I roll, don't want to spend that money, but I'll do it anyway to get this thing fixed. And the nice, the nice young whippersnappers at the Apple store, you know, open it up or turn it over, look at the type in the um, serial number of the computer on the back and say, Oh, sorry, we can't touch it. It's over five years old. It's five years and three months old. And we, as policy, absolutely positively will not touch work on, do anything to any computer that is over five years old. Why? Because they want you to buy a new one. Six months is the, is the real limit, but yours happens to be five years, three months. So they tell you that. I mean, they, I had a two, when I bought it, there was a two year protection on it. And I actually did end up having to use that because the flash memory that the original flash memory that was, that it was, that was in it failed after about 18 months. And the thing was still under the original two year plan. Um, but now, and so y'all know, and I assume this is the same with Apple everywhere, they will not touch it. Under any circumstance, there it's not a matter of paying them. They absolutely will not touch it. And the guy said, what you need to do is go find a private um, Apple repair shop where they have access to spare parts and they're going to have to put a new keyboard in the thing. I was like, dude, just, just for that one button, just for the power button? Yep, just for the one power button. You have to replace the entire keyboard. But that's that's what you're looking at. That's your best bet. So, sigh. Lesson, kombucha is wonderful, but open the bottle in the kitchen sink, not next to your computer. Well, and I've been trying to talk talk you into getting off of the, the MacBook and, and uh, upgrading to Windows 10. Of course, you roll your eyes at that, and and uh, even though you're not the the same, I don't, I, I don't have the money, and even if I did, I don't know if I could justify spending that much money on anything. Yeah, well, Windows laptops aren't that expensive. (laughs) And I, I don't. At this point, I don't know if I want to go back to Windows. I mean, I remember the days of just constantly fighting with malware and all that stuff, and. You know, all these all these computer empires are evil. I mean, let's let let's all just stipulate to that. But I have to give Apple credit is that, you know, in the five years now that I've been running running Apple rigs, I just haven't had any problem with any of this malware attacks and this, that and the other. It just it just they seem to be able to to keep that stuff under control somehow. Yes, there are technical reasons for that. Now, on the other hand, uh, and we've discussed this offline, the majority of the applications you run these days are actually web-based. So you really wouldn't make much of a difference what platform you were on. You could probably get by. And and the reason why this is halfway relevant to the podcast is that uh, I got an email from somebody saying, is there a baby rattle in the back of the back of the of your room when you're when you're um, recording this? Are you holding Tiny Princess when during the recording? And actually, that's Anne's microphone because she's not on a computer. And um, so the audio used to be a little bit better when when you had the the USB headset into the into the MacBook Air. But uh, we're yeah. But now I'm just running off of my um, my emergency backup iPad, um, and you know, thank goodness that I have this thing. 
Um, but yeah, it's just using the, um, you know, the Apple earbuds with the little microphone. It's, it's, I, I'm continually shocked at how, at the quality of the audio of all of this stuff. Hey, you want to hear something that will blow your mind. When the um, anti-Pope Bergoglio video drops and comes up, okay, you guys watch that and then understand that that video was recorded using an iPhone and, and using the ambient microphone on an iPhone. Not even using, um, I originally thought that what I would have to do, and I in fact bought an extension cord, it was $7.50. I bought an extension cord for earbuds so that, and what my plan was, was that the iPhone was going to be um, uh, mounted in a, in a tripod thingy for iPhones. And then I would have the earbuds plugged in on the extension cord, and then I would run the, the earbud cord up underneath, you know, my jacket or whatever, and then clip it like a level lore mic onto my jacket. And that would be the way that the audio would be recorded. So um, my my videographer comes and I set this up and we do it. We do a test and then we compare it to just the ambient microphone. The ambient microphone was way better. All the other videos I've ever made before People have rolled in. I mean, just for the little videos that I have done, not the cattle marketing videos. I did those in a professional studio. That's completely different. These internet videos, you know, the Islamic sexuality, a survey of evil, the economics presentation, the diabolical narcissism video. Oh, the poor guy who the videographer who came and did the diabolical narcissism video. He rolled in with like five grand worth of equipment. And I mean, you know, super high dollar stuff. This video, this anti-Pope Bergoglio video was made on an iPhone with the ambient mic. I mean, the, the ease with which we can do this stuff anymore is just is just stunning. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the technological ability to record these things at the quality level that we can and the speed with which we can get it out to literally the entire world. It's really amazing. And, you know, yes, there's so much evil on the Internet and so much evil in terms of the damage that that technologies are doing to people in society. But you've got you have to admit that our Lord works with these things and makes good come out of, you know, bad, bad paradigms um, like the Internet, which was built essentially by the pornography industry. Well, you can take something like that and God can make good come out of it. And I'm I, I'm continually struck by that. Well, it was built by the defense industry in order there to go, uh, yeah. circumvent nuclear war. And the pornographers said, oh, hey, look what we can do with this. Yeah, right. I don't think pornography Sorry. drove that one. There there's there are a lot of urban legends that pornography drove the choice of VHS over um Betamax and some other choices in, in technologies. I I would say that uh that would not be the case for internet. That was going to happen one way or the other simply because of the the paradigms that were being broken and and what could be done there. It just took Oh, I I know what it is. It's pornography drove the invention and development of the ability to um purchase things online with credit cards and all of that. I think yeah, pornography was the was the impetus driving all of that. 
Does that I, sound right? No. Well, I, I know that e- <laughs> e-commerce was happening in the mid-90s, but long before SSL was common, and it was a real gamble to be, you know, putting your credit card out on the internet. In fact, that was, that. I remember a commercial probably for American Express or one of the uh, credit card companies where some executive was talking about the to the to a, to another executive that about the golf clubs he bought on the internet, and the other one said, "Aren't you afraid of somebody stealing your credit card number?" It's like, no, American Express will take care of it for me. So right? the, the assumption being, hey, the internet is not a place to keep your information safe, and, and by the way, it's still not. But it's there. There are definitely certain you know ways to keep communications uh, secure from point to point. And um, I don't know if this has anything to do with what we planned to talk about, but. <laughs> It's, that's, it's an interesting topic. conversation. At the end of the day, that's that's what a podcast should be. It should just be an interesting conversation. That reminds me of um, LifeLock. Remember LifeLock and all those people who paid for <laughs> guaranteed lifetime identity protection? And then what was the other thing that I was thinking the, the CEO, blast from the past? The CEO oh, actually put his real social security number out yeah. as, as proof of how reliable LifeLock protection was, and then about 17 different scammers opened accounts in his name. Right. <laughs> and two Nigerian princes. <laughs> okay, and the, I'm, the, I'm, other, the other blast from the past that occurred to me was we were, you know, we were talking about Internet Explorer. And, ooh, remember when IE 6.0 came out? Dude, do you remember Netscape? I was using Netscape back in the day. That that's old, man. I was I was on the internet in like ninety ninety five ninety six, and it was it was all CompuServe and Netscape, and oh, what are, what are the other names from the early nineties? Well, in Southern California, it was FlashNet, and um, let's see, there was uh, out of Chicago, there was Megzynet, and um, there were a few different ones, but uh, AOL and CompuServe were the big ones, and you know, CompuServe is now dead, rest their souls. Mm-hmm. And um, talking about Netscape Navigator, uh, I think somewhere on my collection of disks and, and uh, long-term storage, I still have a copy of Netscape Navigator 4.08 because for the longest time, I kept a copy of that even though it was not even close to the closest version of, of Netscape Navigator because as a web developer, that was a quick binary test of whether or not you made a mistake in the HTML you wrote. If the page rendered then you did it right. If there was any slight mistake anywhere, you just simply got a white screen because Netscape said, I don't know what you did. I'm not going to render it. And so that was a quick binary test of whether or not you got it right because IE was just too forgiving, uh, more, more so than it should have been. Now there are much more advanced tools, but uh, I, I'm, I guarantee I've got a copy of it somewhere. If I dig, I can find it. Crazy. So now all these, if you go um, like on YouTube and, or, and search around, Kind of the the big thing right now is there are all these emulator devices of like, for example, we're talking about stuff from the 80s. So like a Commodore 64 or VIC-20 or whatever, whatever those systems were at the Apple IIc from back in the back in the 80s. And it's only a matter of time before there I'm sure there's going to be emulators of Windows 3.1 and Netscape Navigator and all that so that people like us who um, essentially grew up using that stuff were, are going to be able to go back and wax nostalgic about 
interfaces. I mean, how crazy is that? So they're already doing the Commodore 64. So if there's anybody out there who wants to be entrepreneurial and, and make their millions, that's my prediction. That the next the next big thing will be a market for emulator Windows 3.1 devices. You don't have to emulate it. And I'm going to put a very geeky link in the show notes. It's a talk that was given in 2013 called The Birth and Death of JavaScript, although the uh, the speaker calls it JavaScript throughout. It, it, <laughs> it, serves, it serves as a model um, for me personally in terms of how to give an educational and entertaining speech about technology because it is both instructive, educational, that's duplicative, and very entertaining. And he talks about something. He absolutely nailed it five years ago, which is forever in computer time. But talking mm-hmm. about how everything is going to run in the browser uh, as you know a virtual assembly language, basically. And uh, there is a technology coming out called WebAssembly, which, okay, this is probably way past most people's um, care or interest in this. But if you've ever used a web browser, you have interacted behind the scenes with something called JavaScript. Every single web browser since, I don't know, 1942 has had a JavaScript engine in it to one degree. Okay, I'm joking. 1998 has has had a, a, a JavaScript engine in it to one degree or another. It's only been in the last 10 years that JavaScript support has gotten to the point that it's actually been super useful. So you can have things like Gmail and uh, Google Maps and you can do AutoCAD now in a browser, which is just stupidly phenomenal for so many reasons, but it's still really slow because it's JavaScript. Well, some computer scientists said, well, what if we can take C and C++ code and compile it down to a facsimile type language similar to JavaScript, but runs about 2% slower than what binary C would run as. So you you have full-blown applications that can run in the browser as WebAssembly at almost full speed. And then when you take out of the out of the equation, some of the things that the operating system has to do for handling system calls and, and other things, it ends up effectively running faster. So there are, this is not a joke, and I, I'll try to find the link for this one too. You can run Windows 2000 in a browser using WebAssembly. No this is, way! <laughs> this, is not, this is not an emulation. It's the actual C++ uh, of the operating system compiled to WebAssembly. Yeah, there's about 10, I don't know how many megabytes it is. It takes a while to download and get going, but you can launch Windows 2000. And in that non-emulation, you're running it in your browser. You can launch IE5 and browse the web. No way. That's crazy. I'm I'm geeking out right now. I, I need to go open a bottle of kombucha after listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, I, I think we have totally geeked out. And um, looking at the clock, I think we probably better call it and uh, you can go hold Tiny Princess. Yes. Give her uh, a kiss goodnight and cuddle her a little bit because, uh, yeah. yeah, I have to get to bed by 11. And uh, we'll see, it's 20 till at this point, And we're at an hour 33 on the uh, podcast. So there it's you go. Probably a good time to wrap it up. So the email address for the podcast, where you can send feedback, comments, suggestions, other weird uh, examples of non-emulation and emulation in a browser, or kombucha recipes, you can send <laughs> these to podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors, for which we should all be thankful during this uh, Thanksgiving week. Uh, mm. If you're hearing this podcast, 
there was a mass said for all of Ann's benefactors today. And of course, every ma- every week there is a mass said for everybody who departed, whether or not you emailed Ann or not. Everybody who died in the last week, there was a requiem mass said for them. Please remember the priests in your prayers. They need our prayers more than we need their prayers in some cases. Um, they are far more, they're, they're a lot higher on the on Satan's attack list than we are for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for details. And that's what the double secret engineer did. Again, he sent me another page of the uh, Motorola <laughs> specification manual. I'm going to be able to build this thing from sand and a, micro, my, uh, and, a, and a magnifying glass, just melting it and building it at some point, and then I'll have a semi-functional timing chip at some point. But uh, thank you very much for that. And also Marianne, Charles, and uh, Richard uh, via PayPal. Thank you much for that. And Matthew 1720, um, that's a big theme of your video that just came out, and um, you go over it in great te- detail in that video, but uh, you could probably recap it here as well. Oh, sure. I'm getting, I'm getting to be an old hand at it. Um, Matthew 1720 intention is full fasting twice a week. Um, that means no food and only water for 24 hours. Um, that's how I do it. Um, and I do Tuesdays and Fridays, but you do whatever you want. And the intention, the daily prayer intention is this, that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified. That Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pope, Pope Benedict XVI, all this time since he was validly elected in April of 2005. That Bergoglio um, repent revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of what he has done, die in a state of grace, and someday achieve the beatific vision. That's the prayer intention, and um, things are happening. It's kind of it's kind of vivifying and edifying to see this, to see this stuff being reported on, going mainstream. Things are happening. The videos made. It's um, it's pretty cool. So, but keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. We cannot rest on our laurel on our laurels. And of course, my undying gratitude, as always, to all of my benefactors in their extreme, extreme, extreme munificence. Um, it's just. It just keeps going, and I, I, I just can't even hardly believe it sometimes. And um, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep doing what we can. Um, this video is done, and I have another project um, in process in the works, another another media project, but but in a different in a different sense. But I don't want to spoil the surprise, but that should be coming out pretty soon, too. So, you know, and expanding into another um, media avenue. So be on the lookout for that. And, um, again, just thank you to everybody. Yeah. So don't forget the donate to Ann button on the uh, right hand side of the website because, um, Ann is down a MacBook at this point. So, well, <laughs> I, again, I, I hate, I, I hate to ask. I'm functional. I'm functional. I have an iPad. It's okay. It's, it's not an emergency, but you know, yeah, it's just the, the continue to give button for me is on the top right of, of the website. And do remember that Super Nerd and I are completely financially separate, of course. So, um, but thank you all for your munificence to Super Nerd. He's, um, I really appreciate it, what you guys do for him. He works so hard. He puts in so much work and it, it isn't as if 
he doesn't have other better things to be doing, like, you know, his family and tiny princess and full-time job and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you so much for, for y'all being so good to super nerd. Well, that, that comment about, uh, being down on MacBook, I was making a tongue in cheek reference, although I didn't get a chance to explain it yet about the, uh, there was there was a TV uh, commercial was it last year about the girl who's doing putting together her her work assignment on on an iPad and uh, her neighbor says hey what's what's the what are you doing there on your computer and she goes what's a computer so <laughs> very, very snarky but the point being you you can you can get by on an iPad for, for doing a lot of things and that's what we're doing on the podcast at the moment so it seems to work yep absolutely and I'm grateful for it so it's all good and until next time I am super nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless you.